0: Welcome into another edition of the Roost Podcast. This is uh, managing editor and director Matthew Bartlett here by myself. Well, flying solo without Carter, uh, co host, not available this week. But in order to make up and kind of plug us into what's going on outside of our world, uh, inside the hedges, we got Mike Craven from Dave Campbell's Texas Football here to kind of walk us through, I guess, what, your couple first, uh, year six months on the job and what's going on around the state
1: yeah so got hired full-time in September you know I've helped out with the magazine for you know probably a decade now either doing recruiting or in the UTSA section I did the rice section a few times when when coach bailiff was still there so uh, yeah just the first time to really tackle the whole project on my own so I turned in the cover story on Monday and my google doc was about 40,000 words so A half a novel going into this magazine, so excited for it to come out eventually, whenever it does.
0: That's fantastic. That's the thing because when I'll put together the preseason preview, you don't ever look at the word count while you're writing, you know, this one particular feature that's 2,000 words, and then you get to the end and you say, What? (laughs) Yeah, it was a
1: lot for me. You know, the first time doing it's the hardest because this last couple my deadline, for example, was May 1st for pretty much everything but the cover story, and I had. 14 team previews plus three conferences and all the national stuff. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily the content because, you know, as a writer, that's what you're supposed to do is be able to write. It was figuring out if I was on schedule or not. I, I've never done it before. So, <laughs> you know, they were asking me, like, how do you feel like you're doing or what's the progress like? And it's like, guys, I could be, you know, two, three teams behind or I could be two, three teams ahead. I have no idea. So I think it worked out pretty well, but it was a stressful April for sure. But you did finish. I did finish. I mean, we're we're gonna have to do the edits and you know watch the transfer portal and make sure some guys that we mentioned, you know, like Prairie View A and M, for example. You know, I write their defensive section. Their best player is a two time All American safety. Well, you know, he he put his name in the transfer portal three days ago, so I'm gonna have to go back and do you know maintenance to to sections like that. But in terms of just pure content, it's all turned in, and now it's just kind of putting a bow on it, making it look pretty. Yeah,
0: and that's an interesting tie in to kind of I guess. The world of college football today, especially when it comes to putting down a magazine that or anything that is a, a fixed point in time that w- once you hit print, it's 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 gone and it's out the door and you can't make those changes. Uh, how how like hectic is it for for you trying to because, you know, we cover we cover rice here. and We have our hands full keeping track of everything that's going on on one campus. You know, what's it like trying to stay abreast of what were, are 14 teams? Yeah.
1: Twelve FBS team. I mean, there's 47 total, right? That play college football in the state of Texas. Um, Twelve FBS teams, you know. And then Sam Houston, Stephen F, Incarnate Word, you know, Mary Hardin Baylor, the ones that are competing for championships at the lower level. So, you know, I try to say I have about 17 to 20 teams. I'm 17 to 20 teams I'm keeping track of of all time. And and I always admit up front, like my job's not to know a lot about a little. Like I have to know a little about a lot. So. You know, I may not be able to like debate the you know the left guard starting position at, at most schools, but you know I probably know more about every single school than maybe maybe a lot of people do. I I was looking at it the other day, and you know there's probably only three or four people that watch more you know football within the state uh, than this job allows, and so that was one of the reasons I took the job is it just allows you to kind of stay within the state and just you know kind of keep up with the colleges because we have plenty of here to keep up with.
0: Yeah, that's one of the one of the things I I love and just talking it, it, especially at the the group of five level. I feel like at the national level, you know, we've heard heard about you know the Ohio States, the Alabamas, the Texas Texas A and M's ad nauseum. There's but there's a, a lot more that's going on. Maybe uh, I'm not going to call it hidden gems, but it's just a, a much deeper sport than uh, maybe you know you might get if uh, you're looking at a lens that that isn't covering
1: 47 teams Wow. I, That still blows my mind. Um, Yeah, I mean, the least I find the least interesting part of college football to be the college football playoff. Right? I mean, ESPN's kind of hijacked that and made that into be the end-all, be-all of college football. But you know, on a week-to-week basis, and you know, at the G5 level, at the P5 level, all throughout college football, there's just so many storylines that you just don't get in in as many sports. And so, uh, yeah, I'm with you there. I think, I think, you know, for me. You know, Texas and Texas A&M are going to get covered by 13 different outlets, so I'm probably never going to really dip my toe too far into that pond. Uh, but I can be the place that, you know, covers the other 10, you know, when Sam Houston moves up the other 11 at a pretty good basis. And so we're trying to trying to carve out a niche kind of doing stuff like that, I guess. It's just it's hard to juggle. You don't really know what the exact right formula is. You just kind of, you know, guess and check and see what works and what doesn't.
0: And that's what I think is most interesting because – you know, at the, at, at the higher level, I mean, well, maybe Texas is not a good example of this, but we can say that A&M mm-hmm. is probably going to be pretty good. A&M or Texas should probably be pretty good most years. We kind of know where they fit in the larger landscape, so to speak. You go down a level, and uh, that's what I, I want to get you on and kind of talk about what you've kind of learned through the magazine in the spring, because you look at teams like UTSA that are coming off, you know, the, the greatest season in school history. Obviously, they're the probably, well, I probably not going to do that again, but how much of that was the flash in the pan and and how much of that is staying power? And then you have, you know, North Texas, a tale of two seasons last year with the all the way down and then all the way up to make a bowl. Uh, have you kind of been able to, to piece together your view of, you know, that lower level? I, I'm looking like CUSA. Uh, for, for for 2022, you know, how much of that moving and, and shaking is kind of materialized into, you know, a, a the same next year and then who's who's up and who's down?
1: You know, it's interesting is, you know, with the COVID year and then with the transfer portal, honestly, the hardest part was kind of getting a grasp of who's still on campus. Um, and so. You know, just because a guy was a senior doesn't mean he was graduating. Just because a guy was a sophomore doesn't mean he was coming back. You know, so it was kind of one of those where you couldn't really assume anything based on the roster. Uh, If we're talking UTSA, what I find interesting about the Roadrunners is they could be more talented or even better this year, but may not have nearly as good of a record. You know, if if you told me UTSA goes eight and four in twenty twenty two, you know, I'm not that shocked. They start off with Houston, they play at Army, they got to play at Texas. I mean, it's it's you know possible that UTSA starts 0 and 3 and is the best 0 and 3 team in the nation a lot like Western Kentucky kind of started last year in a, in a slump even though they were really good they were just getting beat by a better teams so it'll be interesting to see you know what UTSA does when they're hitting the mouth you know they they played you know pretty stress free football for a lot of last season you know if they start 0 2 0 3 does that bleed into conference or are they able to kind of push the reset button for North Texas I still think the most fascinating part about the Mean Green is you know when Seth Luttrell's had Success at North Texas. It was a quarterback-friendly, quarterback-led program. You go into this year, and, and you know they're still listing Austin Ane as the starter. If they don't upgrade the quarterback position, they're going to have to be more of a ground and pound team, like they were the last half of the year, where they started playing two tight ends, one running back, and really just kind of stayed in that twelve personnel. Um, for me, that's a hard way to win, and, and we can talk about Rice here in a little bit too. And I, I just feel like it's a hard way to win at the G5 level to count on your offensive linemen uh, to be able to bully and push people around. It's just harder and harder to find those guys. I think that's why you see so many spread offenses at the G5 level. Until North Texas can figure out the quarterback position, I don't know if you can count on them to be any more than an average football team. I think the one to watch may be UTEP, not because they're any better this year than they were last year. I don't know how they replaced Jacob Cowling, Justin Garrett on the outside. But Conference USA did them a favor, and we could get into conspiracy theories and talk about it (laughs) because, you know, they're coming back and everybody else is leaving. But, you know, they don't get UIV. They don't get Western Kentucky. They got North Texas at home in week zero before North Texas, you know, kind of gets to figure some things out. And so UTEP could be one of those teams that, you know, on paper isn't as talented as a Rice, isn't as talented as a North Texas. But you look up and they have an 8-4 season just because the schedule broke the right way.
0: Yeah, the fact that we're able to talk about the possibility of it for UTEP and not pinch ourselves is is wild, and it's funny because a, a program like UTEP that is kind of a an outpost, uh, an outpost in an outpost almost, you know, at, mm. on the college football level, they're just kind of tucked away there to where you know they've been struggling for a while. They bring in Dana Dimmel and he doesn't have success uh, immediately, and it goes a couple years and it's still not working. You know, if Dana Dimmel is hired and he takes the same job at, you know, another in-state Baylor, Texas Tech, Texas, uh, he doesn't make it to year five. And we never we never see this. But know, for various reasons, do
1: it. It's that it happened to him in Houston. You know, he, right. he he was the Houston head coach for a little while and wasn't given the time to, to build that up. When he got hired at UTEP or when he was going through the interview process at, at UTEP, who also had a new athletic director at the time, Jim Center. Yeah, He he told him, look, I'll take the job, but you can't bother me about wins and losses for four years. You know, this, you know, 2017, the year before he was hired, they were winless. They were, I mean, the cupboard was as bare as a, a cupboard can be in modern FBS football. That was, that was an FCS football team at best. Um, I think it was great that they gave him the time and didn't really worry about the wins and losses. And then, you know, year four, when he kind of asked for, you know, his grade to finally be published, you know, they win seven games and go to a bowl game. and. You know, they've only gone to consecutive bowls, you know, one time in their career or one time in their history. And I think it was like in the 50s or something. So they're trying to do something pretty unprecedented out there.
0: And it's almost that when you're when you're at this level of football, do you kind of have to do something, something different? (laughs) Maybe it's the, uh, you know, giving the coach the extra length or you talked about, you know, the offensive uh, philosophy. Do you have to be unique to some level to find your niche and, and make it work?
1: I think you probably do if you're not in a recruiting hotbed. You know, we've seen the armed forces do that. But some of that's because, you know, those guys just can't get huge, right? Like, I had a buddy who played offensive line for Army, and this is 20 years ago. But, you know, he couldn't get over 260 because he had to get through boot camp. You know, so you couldn't be a 310-pound offensive lineman. You know, and if you're going to have a bunch of 250, 260-pound offensive linemen, you're going to have to run the wing tee or, or something that utilizes that. I think that's kind of true at the G5 level. You know, you're, you're going to have more wide receivers, more quarterbacks than you probably have talented five-star offensive tackles, right? So you got to be more spread, more, you know, figure out how to do that, how to uh, put together a roster. Now, the transfer portal, I think, helps teams like that. Sure, you're going to lose a guy or two like Jacob Cowling that had these big seasons that transferred to Arizona. Uh, but it also allows you to kind of get some guys that maybe you'd have no chance with during the recruiting cycle. You get them on their second, you know, stop. Uh, Dana Dimmel. You know, he kind of game up in the Bill Snyder. You know, he played for Bill Snyder, coached under Bill Snyder, and so I think he was the perfect hire for UTEP because they knew they couldn't do it in a traditional way. You're just not going to get a bunch of recruits from Houston, DFW, to go out to El Paso and, and start their high school. You're just not going to do it, right? You're going to have to do it through the JUCO level, and I think Dimmel was the perfect guy to hire for that because he's watched that at Kansas State be done as good as anybody's ever done it.
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting because. uh you know whether it's the JUCO, whether it's the transfer portal, whoever—I guess both—coming in through that. The the way that you've seen programs like SMU and uh, Houston, I think, are two examples of that that bounce back player. Um, you know, left went off to school at you know whoever USC or whatever, come back and and come home, quote unquote. I know that's how I you know SMU has marketed it past several years and been able. To find tremendous success, but when you when you don't have that, uh, you kind of have to get creative. Um, so it's been interesting to to watch on that level because I, I think you know Rice has certainly had a, a good amount of success in the portal, and and that's one thing I would ask you from having a, a maybe a wider lens uh, from my perspective when I see how you know there's a lot of hand wringing um, among the smaller school fans that the transfer portal is you know taking all their best players and it's and it's a negative. I kind of have gone through and looked and stacked up. I'm like, okay, who left Rice? Who came to Rice? Is this a net win or a net loss? Uh, and every time I go and sit down to do it, it seems overwhelmingly and in benefiting, uh, you know, programs at, at, at Rice's level uh, because there's so many, you know, Power 5 program players that transfer. Most of them don't end up at Power 5 schools. They they, they go down a level, so to speak. And And so Rice is kind of cleaned up. Do you kind of view that? Is, is something that you've kind of seen too that maybe the, the smaller school benefits a little bit more or have you seen differently?
1: Yeah I mean I think he kind of goes both ways you know um, and I, I think it's easy as a fan to like just point to the wide receiver you lose or the quarterback or the defensive back you lose that kind of quote-unquote moves up right but I do th- I'm with you I think for every one of those kind of stars that get poached there's three or four guys that maybe didn't work out at their previous stop for whatever reason. I mean, there's tons of variables. There's depth charts, there's coaching changes, there's homesickness, there's just being an 18 year old kid who does a bonehead thing, right? There's plenty of reasons why it wouldn't work out at your first stop. I think a place like Rice or any G5 program probably has more opportunity to go and get better in the transfer portal than they risk losing talent in the transfer portal. I think there's usually adequate replacements within that portal uh, for rice. I mean, occasionally you're gonna have a Jake Bailey leave that really hurts and it's like, how do you do how do you replace that? You know, but you go to practice, you watch Sam Crawford and you're like, oh, that's how, right? And so uh, I think there's plenty of opportunities to why it hurts because you you start you know those players. You know the players leaving. You rooted for the players leaving. So it feels like it's worse than getting a couple guys back. But I think you're right, if you kind of take a step back, uh, the G five level is probably benefiting as much as anybody from from the transfer. Board. It's the top, top teams like Alabama And then, you know, yeah, your middle of your pack, lower teams that are kind of getting some guys that, you know, maybe got lost in the shuffle out of Texas or A&M or TCU. It's interesting because
0: you you mentioned Rice and the wide receivers. I think that's the the perfect example because you have Bailey go, uh, you know, up to SMU. But if you look at the remainder of the Rice receiving core right now, uh, Brad Rosner, Juco guy, uh, you have mentioned Sam Crosner, Sam Crawford uh, coming down from Tulsa. You have Isaiah Esdale, West Virginia transfer uh, that is coming in. And then uh, last year you had Trey Patterson who transferred in from New Mexico. So, I mean, it's it's not one for one, but, but you're losing one guy uh, and replacing him with four transfers. And it doesn't work like that at every position, but I feel like there's probably more examples that you could point to across other schools that are seeing
1: similar things happen. 100%. I mean, a- absolutely. I think SMU, for example, feels like they did a pretty good job in the transfer portal. Like they lost Ulysses Bentley at running back to Ole Miss, but they got Kamar Wheaton from Alabama, and they probably feel like that's a net gain. Um, I think what's been interesting is, you know, from going around everywhere, one of the things that I've noticed is spring football is changing. And I wouldn't be surprised if spring football goes the way of NFL kind of offseason football, where it becomes more of OTAs, right? Because what these coaches are dealing with is, you're losing your 25 seniors that you normally lose, quote unquote, in theory. But then you're losing another 10, 15 guys to the transfer portal. All of a sudden, in spring football, and you got 45 scholarship players out there, and it's just impossible to really run a uh, spring football. It becomes more of a who do we have, who do we need type of period. It's an evaluation period as much as it is a developmental period. Um, and so, right now, I think if you're, you know, let's just use Rice for an example, you're using spring football sure to develop your guys and work on your offense and work on your defense, but as much, if not more, you're looking at spots and you're going, OK, uh, I know this won't be true for Rice, but like, hey, left tackle is not what we thought we were going to we needed. Let's go look in the transfer portal and see what that is. Linebacker doesn't have the depth that we thought it would because so-and-so transferred or so-and-so got hurt or so-and-so just hasn't matured and developed the way that we thought. Let's go fill in those spots. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do think there are some problems with the transfer portal. There needs to be some periods and some like, you know, some kind of like, you know, guidance to how this is all working. But I think schools and the players are both benefits of, of this if done correctly.
0: Yeah, and, and it's interesting because the, just coming out this week was the news that the NCAA is, is I don't know how they were officially wording it, but uh, considering go, doing away with the 25 scholarship limit. Of course, I think it was last year they said, okay, well, it's 25, but it's really 25 plus you can replace seven players that transfer out. Um and just about everybody has more than seven. So it became a 32-player limit. And now they're thinking about going away with it entirely. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, having some some <laughs> when done right. Oh, have you kind of had time to process? I know that kind of is, is just coming out with that news of, of what a world where there is, you know, no limits. You want to go reload your roster with 40 transfers? Theoretically, you could. <laughs>
1: I mean, from my understanding it, it's going to be kind of a 2-year deal and they'll see where to go with it after that, but I think it's almost necessary because you're going to have so many COVID year kids off your books here, plus the transfers, plus your normal kind of attrition from graduation or guys getting hurt or you know dropping out of school or whatever. You know, like I just said, you could wind up looking at spring football where you got 35, 40 scholarship players on your team and if you're limited to only, you know, the 25 plus 7, you know, you may have to walk into fall with 70, 75 scholarship players on your roster, like that's just not how it should be. And that's open spots that dudes in the transfer portal could fill, right? If you got 10 extra scholarships, but those are dead scholarships that you can't use until next cycle, well, that's 10 guys in the portal that can't find a new place to go. And so I think it's a thing that, you know, I rarely agree with the NCAA and the leadership (laughs) and and this stuff, but I do think this is one of those necessary evils over the next two years to kind of, Ride that wave of not only the transfer portal, but that backlog of, of players that took that extra COVID year that are going to get washed off the books over the next couple of seasons.
0: Yeah, I've stopped. I've kind of stopped, almost given up trying to figure out what year people are in in all of this mess. I was I was trying through it, having a conversation on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Dion De- Noville at North Texas, and uh, trying to remember like he's been there forever. Is is he is he out of eligibility? Is he going to stop terrorizing Rice? And I'll go pull up his uh, his page on the the North Texas uh, roster, and I'm like, well, he's a he's a fifth year like senior. I'm like, does wait, is that regular senior? Is that redshirt senior? Does is, yep. is he gone? He's gone. So
1: <laughs> good yeah, news for us. A, a term that will be in the magazine that I don't think ever has been in the magazine before is a fifth year starter. You know, because like you couldn't have done that previously, but like North Texas has an offensive lineman that has 48 starts on her, under his belt going into the season. I mean, he could, he could theoretically get to 60, 62 starts if they made the championship game in a bowl game. Right. So uh, yeah. just, yeah, it, it's insane. looking at I had coaches asking me, right? Like I would be at one school and they'd be asking me who was returning at another school. Cause they didn't know either, you know? <laughs> so I, I think everybody's kind of rolling blind a little bit right now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We had Javon Wolford, right tackle at Rice last year, uh, played seven years of of D one football, um, which is it's just bizarre. Yes, he's gone now. <laughs> I asked him if he's going to go for an eighth. Doctorate. They said they don't allow doctorate.
1: that. Yeah, that would be uh, that'd be nice on scholarship though for seven years, man. You could really you could get a lot of education done in that amount of time.
0: Yeah, I think he's done with two and a half degrees. I think he's about to finish up a third. So more power to him. Uh, yeah but, man that's take advantage of the system right and and we we mentioned uh, you know transfers i think every fan base is kind of more familiar with the guys that they lose and some of the individual ones they bring in um who are some guys that you know as you've been putting through maybe uh, you know at the rice texas state houston you know that that g5 uh level that have you know you think have the potential to make the biggest impact uh, those new faces out of the portal that'll that'll be on the field this fall.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important ones is probably Lane Hatcher at Texas State, quarterback, transferred in from Arkansas State. You know, Spav is in a really important time there uh, with the Bobcats. I, I do think he's on maybe his last year or second to last year of his contract, if, if I remember that correctly. You know, they haven't reached a bowl game, you know, ever in their history since they moved up. Um, they haven't, you know, had a winning season, I think, in six or seven years since Francione was on campus. So it's been a while. Um, you know, they he's a quarterback guy, right? I mean, he made his bones with Johnny Manziel, his best friends, Cliff Kingsbury. I mean, he's an offensive quarterback guy, but they have not been able to figure out that position consistently over the last couple of seasons. And it's really held them back. If Lane Hatcher can come in, you know, he's a guy who's thrown for over 7000 yards in his career in that conference. So if he can come in and take that spot, Brady McBride transferred in the middle of spring practice. So it, you know, writing's kind of on the wall that he's going to win that job. If he can be a dude and he can make that, you know, position into something average, into something, you know, above average where it's a winning position, I think Texas State could could surprise some people, not to get to ten wins or anything, but get to a bowl game and kind of, you know, reestablish Spavidal as, as somebody who, you know, may be worthy of keeping that job for a couple years. Yeah, you know, UTSA, I, I think Ty Edwards, the running back, is a very important uh, you know, addition, they needed somebody to come in with Sincere McCormick, Sincere McCormick, you know, moving away, you know, a couple couple time offensive player of the year in the in conference. So I think they're gonna be more of a passing team this year, uh, with just their wide receiver core and their quarterback coming back and stuff. But I think, you know, Jeff Traylor, even if we go back to his Gilmer days, you know, he's gonna run the football. And so Adding Edwards to that room, I think, was important. So those, those are two guys that, you know, just off the top of my head, I, I think are going to be really really important kind of for those teams moving forward. Anybody on the defensive side of the ball that sticks out? Uh, well, I was just doing the Sam Houston section. So I guess off the top of my head, you know, I think B.J. Foster kind of going down uh, to that level uh, will be interesting to watch. You know, he was a five-star guy you know, coming into, coming into college that everybody really considered 1 or 1A uh, of the best safeties next to Caden Stearns and just hadn't worked out for him. So I'm always interested to see how, you know, FBS guys kind of transfer that FCS level. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how much, you know, he kind of noise he makes down there. But, yeah, that's one of those things when you start covering so many teams and so many transfers coming in and out, you kind of forget kind of who's coming in who's coming out. You said that. I was like, oh, he's at where now? There's
0: enough guys who are on the – uh you know the uh their second maybe third some people are on their fourth college football team it's starting to get a uh, I just like Brew McCoy is in the went from what USC to Texas to USC to Tennessee now
1: so I'm I'm losing yeah. track and then you add in some of the high school transfers cuz it's starting earlier and earlier now and you got you got some kids you know junior senior in college that are at their fifth sixth seventh schools over the last 8 years so yeah I mean it it's pretty crazy I, it would be interesting you know, I don't know how you would even track this and stuff, but it'd be really interesting to see the success rate of guys who have transferred more than once, right? If you transfer two or more times, does that ever really work out for you? I'd imagine, you know, after you know, one stop didn't work out, okay, you know, there's so many variables that that can be a deal. Two stops don't work out, maybe it's more of the person in the mirror than it is the the landing spot. Yeah, I know that was something that we're talking about during the
0: the first round of the NFL draft had. I forgot what what the number was, but the most transfers they'd had drafted in the first round ever. Um, But, you know, I think that also comes along with the territory of what the college football world looks like right now. Um, So it'll be interesting. So, on the, we've talked shuffling players. We haven't talked shuffling conferences. And I know, you know, realignment is just kind of the, I don't know, the, casual college football fans punching bag during the off season. This is what you talk about, but it'll be interesting, you know, after you have had the chance to sit and talk down, uh, you know, with some of these coaches, some of these players uh, around, you know, Texas, you know, it's the the conferences, you know, even the, the, the big dogs, you have Texas moving and all the way down the Sam Houston moving conferences, every level it's, it's shifting and changing. What have kind of the, the rumblings that you've heard about, From from specific folks, is it kind of getting to the point where, you know, people like it, people don't like it. They're kind of uneasy. What's the general feel uh, that you've gotten from folks on, you know, what the college football landscape
1: looks like from a from a conference level? It is amazing, right, to look back at this time last year before the Texas, Oklahoma news, you know, kind of went like what the landscape of college football was then versus what, you know, what it is now. You know, I drive to Houston to do the Houston, you know, interviews for the magazine, and they already have Big Twelve stuff everywhere. You know, already <laughs> advertising, you know, on their athletic building for recruiting purposes. You know, in Texas, they're not allowed to do that contractually, um, and so you know, it's still Big Twelve stuff everywhere. Yeah, I honestly think it depends on the place, right? You go to Texas, you go to Houston, you go to, you know, even Rice, UTSA, North Texas. I think those those places are excited, right? New beginnings. Everybody likes something new. Uh, the the appearance of stepping up, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the American is and if that is really a big step up from what the old you know, conference USA was. Um, you know, but then you go to UTEP, you go to SMU and maybe it's not viewed the same. Right. Like UTEP, I could argue, was the biggest losers there in the midst of their biggest season. They finally reached bowl eligibility, you know, their best year since I think 2007 or something like that. You know, right in the middle of that, they get they realize they get left out of the realignment stuff, and they're kind of in no man's land, right? They're going to be playing with, like, New Mexico State, Sam Houston. Is, is conference USA is going to look really, really weird over the next couple of years. You know, and then SMU, you know, I think I can make the argument and win it pretty easily that Sonny Dykes only left SMU because they didn't get into the Big 12, right? If SMU is a Big 12 conference team right now, Sonny Dykes is still their head coach. And so, you know, they lost their head coach to their biggest rival, Ah, uh, because of conference realignment, and so, yeah, I think it's a it's a big deal. It's a seismic shift, and, and depending on if you you know consider yourself a winner or a loser in that musical chairs, the the tenor of the conversation changes dramatically.
0: And it's and it's interesting because, you know, I I get how the decisions get made and, and who's in the room and and who's not in the room, but you know, from the moving up perspective, I think the the fan base is generally are optimistic because you know that's a prestigious you know a gain for for their program but there's also the uh you know the schedule the reality of of who's on your schedule when you make that jump to the next level i know the 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 idea of rice getting to go back and and play smu on a a regular basis is is pretty exciting i know that you know from from a utep perspective you know we talked net loss but uh, with new mexico state coming in to conference usa it well, I guess unannounced, whatever the timeline ends up being, 2023 something, uh, there's some interest there. So uh, there's some scheduling perks that kind of make it interesting. Uh, And then also it kind of makes it difficult because I I am trying to figure out, you know, we talk about, you know, these conferences, there was the wave that happened in, you know, 2011, 12, 13, that kind of shook things up and then things settled out. And then I kind of started processing, You know, seeing Missouri in an SEC championship game and have kind of like been able to put that together Uh, when you were kind of putting through and trying to pick, you know, I guess this will matter more, maybe next year, who's going to be contending for these conference champion spots? Have you thought about, you know, like, uh, you know, BYU and the Big 12 championship game and how you kind of piece together the the new
1: power structures that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be the more fascinating thing in the Big 12 is who kind of emerges as, you know, the big dog on the recruiting trail. Like for so long, it was even if Texas isn't good on the field, they're going to get theirs in recruiting. And, you know, places like Baylor, Texas Tech, uh, they succeeded that. They knew that was going to be true, right? You're not going to win many head-on-head battles with those programs. Well, without Texas and Oklahoma there, that playing field is pretty even. So, is is the big recruiting is it going to be baylor is it going to be joey mcguire at texas tech is it going to be byu is it going to be cincinnati with ohio being you know a base that is underrated in terms of producing high school talent so uh is it going to be houston you know with with being in you know maybe the best you know pound for pound city to produce talent uh nfl wise or whatever so i i do think that's going to be interesting not necessarily like who becomes like the favorites in the first couple of seasons. Cause I think that kind of depends on who's on the roster and who's not right then. But for me, the more interesting part is who is going to emerge on the recruiting trail in that pecking order. What's that new perception, perception pecking order going to be? Cause that's all recruiting really is right. It's just a, a perceived pecking order of things. And it'll be to me fascinating to see kind of who emerges in the big 12 as kind of like the top dog recruiter in that conference. Um, compared to everybody else, because there is going to be a power vacuum. There's there's no doubt about that. But there's only so many. Well, I mean, we just talked about how there aren't going to be scholarship limits for a couple of years. I was going to say there's only many, so many scholarships to go around. So, you know, Maybe Texas can assign so many guys, but, you know, that's not that's not really true anymore. What will be, fa- you know, to bring that back up, thinking about it, just talking about it out loud. You know, I wonder if a team like Texas, do you do you use those on like high school guys and you just load up on on high school guys or do you use them on transfers? Like, how do you go about using those extra scholarships? That'll be something to watch as well. Yeah, it's interesting because
0: and I've talked with with some coaches about this. It gets interesting because, you know, back in the day you recruited a kid in high school and you locked him up and he was going to be there for four, maybe five years. And so you could kind of count in that developmental piece if you're recruiting a kid out of high school, you hope he's going to be on your roster for four years or that he's an impactful enough player that, you know, you want him to stay and he wants to stay there. But I, 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 it's going to be interesting to look at and see what, you know, what, what percentage of, you know, players on any roster, uh, you know, were recruited there out of high school and stayed there for four years. Uh, I would imagine that number was probably pretty high, you know, four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, I'm just running through the Rice roster right now. Uh, the the four-year-stuck-it-out-the-whole-time players, uh, it's going to be thin because at that point you're all on, you know, one, two, maybe three-year stints, and then maybe you end up somewhere else.
1: Yeah, it'll be a, to me it'll be fascinating to see if there's any correlation there with winning. Right? If, if we're able to, like, take, you know, the 12 FBS teams in Texas and see if there's any – you know, kind of correlating data that shows, okay, the more that they in-house developed guys and kept the guys from the recruiting class on campus, the better their results are. Or if it's just random and it doesn't really matter and everybody can find kind of different ways to go about it. Because like you said, I think for so long, there was a recipe on how to do this. You load up on high school guys, you develop them, hopefully by year three on campus, they're playing and you move on from there. And that, that's how you were able to do it. Well, that reality is gone now. Um, it's going to be a lot more like basketball, probably, where you almost have to reset your roster every single year. Uh, will somebody like Lane Kiffin and Old Miss, who's just really kind of tackling this transfer portal on, will that be the long term uh, route to success? Or you know, is there still something to be said about the old school way of going through the high school ranks? I have no idea, and I don't think anybody does. And it'll just be uh, you know up to the passage of time to kind of figure out you know what the best way is, or if there is even is the best way.
0: Yeah, and I think it might just end up being you know everybody's going to try their own way, but it's it's interesting. You mentioned up the top Western Kentucky in the season that they had. Well, they they built that roster off of transfers. It was you know transfer you. They took Houston Baptist and they moved everybody in the coaching staff essentially east to yeah. Bowling Green and had a, a historic season from what they were all accomplished, at least on a statistical standpoint, you know, ended up getting the conference championship game. That was huge, but they're turning over their entire roster and now they're going to go try and, you know, roll the dice again. And I happen to bring in, you know, the FBS current leader and in, in passing <laughs> Jarrett Doge uh, from West Virginia to kind of rekindle the ba- the Bailey Zappi thunder. So who's, who knows if it's going to work, but it's interesting if you look at that versus, you know, I think probably – at this time, probably most teams around the country that have predominantly based their rosters on high school kids um, with supplemental uh, transfer additions. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to work, but it's, it's going to be fun to see it play out.
1: Yeah, and, for uh, sure. For sure. And yeah. I, I think like we talked about earlier, teams like Houston, SMU, places that are kind of, you know, USC, even UCLA, places that are, you know, they produce talent. I think there's an advantage there because as you get older, returning home feels a little bit better and better. When you're a junior in high school and you're committing to a college, it's like, man, I'll go up here and I'll make my own life and I'll get out of this town and it's going to be great. After a couple of years passes, it's like, man, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I don't mind going back home. I, you know, it'll be it'll be uh, interesting to me to see if SMU, Houston programs like that kind of benefit in this. You know, Miami if bigger cities kind of start benefiting a little bit more in the NIL world and in the transfer world where for so long you look at the power structure of college football and it's in towns that you know not really much else is going on other than college football. Is that an advantage in, in the world of NIL? Is it a disadvantage in the world of NIL? Would you rather be in an Austin that has Dell Computers and Oracle or in Miami that has a bunch of businesses or Caleb Williams going to USC for like $4 million or whatever it is? Uh it's just a, a wild-ass time in college football, and I, I don't think – I think anybody who tries to talk about it with any type of certainty is lying, right? Like, we just have no clue, and we're just going to have to watch it unfold and see what happens. But yeah, can we at least agree that college football is not dying?
0: Oh. <laughs> no, no, no change is going to – because I think the the, the narrative maybe the, from the national, uh, you know, <laughs> concerned people are, you know, this is the change that's going to break college football and the downfall of everything as we know it. It's going to be different, but but it's going to be fine. Can we can we at least agree on that?
1: I kind of look at it like religion, and I don't want to make anybody upset or anything, but, like, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody thinks that they're living in the end times, you know, that, like, all the things that were written, you know, are, like, talking about right now, you know, and this is what, it, you know, it's like, it never ends up being that, you know, it's like, it's going to happen on May 4th, too, you know, and then, like, it passes, and it's like, oh, no, it's going to be some other year or whatever. I, I feel like that when it comes to, you know, sports in general, where, Every couple of years, there's, you know, steroids was going to ruin baseball. Kneeling in the anthem was going to ruin the NFL. Transfer portal, NIL is going to ruin college football. Then you look at the ratings and they're all higher than ever, right? So, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, three point shot was going to ruin basketball. Well, the NBA is just crushing it in, in ratings right now in the playoffs. So, you know, I, I just, I think uh, we we're just an overreaction society. I mean, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. And, uh, one of them is that it's always going to be doomsday and the sky is falling. When in reality, it's usually just another bump along the road. Well, m- maybe
0: not, maybe not overreaction, but I, I am curious. Kind of, I think there's a, a point in the offseason calendar where we kind of reset and we start, you know, looking towards next year and what it's going to look like. At least in the college football world, it's going to be right when that magazine comes out that we start trying to figure out who's on what roster and whatnot. But do you have kind of, as you kind of put things together, um, you know, maybe kind of, I don't know if it's a, a storyline or, or, or something interesting, a couple tidbits that you've kind of taken that these are kind of things that you have circled that I really want to see this. Uh, I want to know if this is going to happen or if they can find success here or if this player fits in. Have you kind of identified a, a couple storylines that you think are particularly interesting, uh, you know, from, from, from Texas football uh, going into, you know, 2022 at the college level
1: yeah I think mine kind of center on coaches and and maybe that kind of just kind of shows kind of what my job is and what I have to pay attention to but you know is Joey McGuire you know ready is is Texas Tech gonna become you know kind of a big deal out there kind of a you know Mike Leach type run is he is he capable of recruiting out there because I mean right now I think he has like the second or third ranked recruiting class in the nation and I know that won't hold Uh, But if he can sign a top 25 recruiting class, that signals kind of a new era in Texas Tech. And like we talked about with OU and Texas leaving, you know, can he kind of become the Pied Piper of that conference where he's the best recruiter and he gets the best talent and and Texas Tech becomes a player again? Then at Texas, you know, is Steve Sarkeesian the guy? You know, what is the guy at Texas? I have no idea. Um, You know, and so. If he goes five and seven again, or even six and six, seven and five, eight and four, I mean, what is success at Texas? What will those fans enjoy? What won't they enjoy? Uh, I have no idea. So I think that's fascinating. You know, week two, Alabama comes into town, and we know how Ooh. Alabama likes the kind of humble former assistant coaches, right? Nick Saban takes some pride and kind of you know point out that he's still the guy, and they're not. You know, I, you know, Texas could get blown out there. You know, Texas loses. Let's say Texas loses forty nine to seven to Alabama at home in week two. What's the seat look like for Steve Sarkeesian in year two when you know you're going into the SEC and that's the type of team you're going to play almost every single week? You know, it's like, what does that become at Texas? So uh, I think that's going to be a fascinating storyline. And then lastly, uh, I know I've only concentrated on P5 for this one. But lastly, I, you know, I, I think for me, I don't know what Baylor is. Is Dave Aranda and Baylor closer to the 2022 win team? Are they closer to that 12 win team? Or, are they going to be in the middle? When you look at that roster, those were all guys that Matt Rule and Joey McGuire got on campus. You know, will Dave Aranda be able to kind of win with his own guys and with that next crop of players at Baylor? Um, I have no idea, and I think that'll be fascinating as well because right now he kind of seems like that next big superstar in, in the college coaching ranks. And uh, you know, if this year they take a step backwards and go, let's say eight and four and finish third or fourth in the Big Twelve. Does that trajectory still hold? I have no idea. So to me, you know, those kind of three guys, you know, going into year one or year two are, are just really fascinating storylines that you know will kind of dictate the way the state is perceived nationally as well.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting at, at Baylor because you got to change a quarterback. You had a lot of guys uh, going out, whether it be NFL or, or transfer. We talked about the ever-going switch of who's on the roster. Uh, it, it's kind of they're probably a good microcosm of the maybe it's the the resetness of of college football it really could start to trend towards a a year-to-year sport where uh you know it is texas going to be good this year i don't know is baylor going to be good this year they were last year i, I don't know and, and it kind of trickles down because if there's no consistency at that level you know once you get down to figuring out is north texas going to be good this year I don't know. You mentioned rising like the Seth Luttrell star um, was probably as high, if not higher than, uh, you know, the Dave Aranda hype uh, back in the day and uh, didn't take the Kansas State job. And, and the rest is history. So.
1: Well, that's nothing, right. Jeff Trailer, you know, what most likely turned down that Texas Tech job. Right. Like Trailer, I think by all reports had an opportunity uh, to be the Texas Tech head coach, and he stayed at UTSA because he didn't want to leave leave in the middle of season. And it seemed like Texas Tech really wanted to hire a coach in the middle of the year and, and kind of allow that person to get a head start on recruiting the way that they let McGuire. You know, will that backfire? Right? Should you know? Will Will Trailer kind of be a Latrell type story where it's a cautionary tale where you have to strike where the iron's hot? I have no idea. Um, so you know, like you said. I feel like, you know, at the end of the season before, you could kind of project into next year, like these teams are going to be good, these teams are going to be bad, and that's just how it is until they can kind of get recruits and, and change the program. But now you can just do that in offseason, for better or for worse. And uh, it makes it really hard to kind of in your head go, these teams are going to be good, these teams are going to be bad. I feel like I know Houston's going to be really good.
0: Are you yeah. saying that just because they're on Rice's schedule?
1: No, I, I mean, I'm saying <laughs> I feel like they have, they, out of all the colleges in this state, they have the most continuity. Same head coach, same offensive system, same defensive system, same quarterback. You know, Ultimate Caskel getting hurt was a blow. Star wide receiver, most of their offensive line is back. The defense is, is mostly returning. Uh, I feel like they're as safe of a bet as you can get in Texas. But if you told me, that they lost to Texas Tech and UTSA or one or the other in the first two or three weeks, I wouldn't be shocked. And so, you know, I think that just speaks to the parody of college football right now. I mean, a And M just signed the number one recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes, right? If a And M went seven and five next year, would you be surprised? I mean, I wouldn't. And so, you just never know. If if, if Texas went, if I told you right now, Texas either went ten and two or six and six. I don't know where my money would go if those were the only two options. Like if that, if somebody from the the future was like, they went (laughs) one of these things, pick one, here's a gun to your head. You got to be right. I honestly don't know which one I'd pick. And so that's just a fascinating time in college football where you just really don't know year in year out. And it's always kind of been like that, but I think it's super, super, you know, just kind of just parody and you just have no idea what's going to happen anymore,
0: which is why I love it. (laughs) <laughs> this is yeah. this is why we cover this sport. If we wanted it to be, you know, sanitized and and, and you know the same faces at the same uh, you know, games every we would go watch the NFL. We'd go watch Tom Tom Brady playing the Super Bowl for the hundred and seventy-fifth year in a row. Well, I guess we do have that at the uh the the college football playoff we got the same faces. But uh on the non college football playoff tier, that's a separate rant for another time. I, I agree. Uh it's fascinating because I, I couldn't tell you. Especially from the, this is what we think, but we're going to get to week four, and we're going to throw everything out of the window because somebody's going to be three and zero that wasn't supposed to, and somebody's going to be zero and three.
1: And it's really scary to put together a magazine and have to pick conference champions, <laughs> and like, like list the the rank and order and all this kind of stuff. And you know, like Conference USA is a perfect example. Like I think in the power rankings, and I don't know if I'm, this isn't breaking news or anything, but I think in the power rankings, I list North Texas above UTep. But I, I, in the team section stuff, I have UTEP with a better record, and I think I have them beating North Texas, but it's week zero in El Paso. You know, so I mean, I think North Texas is probably the more talented team, but I think UTEP has the better schedule. But all of those things could be wrong, right? They could all change, you know, by July, I could have changed my mind, but it's too late to change it by then. I, it's just, uh, I, I don't think. You know, I I had coaches talk to me about this throughout the spring when I was going on visits, and they're like, "Everything I tell you right now is subject to change, and we could have a completely different football team come August." You know, and that's that's just the reality of college football right now.
0: Yeah, the best wide receiver in the country is currently in the transfer portal.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and he's like training with Alabama's. You know, he was like fire to go to USC, right? And the news surfaces today that he's out in California with Bryce Young. Well. You know, I, it, it's just wild. It's absolutely wild, and it, it it's just amazing that uh, we keep making it easier and easier for Nick Saban to to run the sport.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the thing that that Saban is like. Are you going to change his rules? Okay, I'll adjust. I'll do, I'll play with whatever yeah. rules you want, and I'll wait. He tried to warn
1: everybody. Like, <laughs> Are, sure? Are y'all sure this is what you want college football to look like? Because like now I now I can just recruit from y'all. Like I don't even have to go recruit high school anymore. I can just recruit you guys. You know, I can, I can sit around and wait to see who pops up. I mean, he's still in starting cornerbacks from LSU. It's not like he's dropping down to G5 levels and taking UTSA's best player. He's taking LSU's best player, right? He's taking Pitt's best player. Um, it, that's another storyline is, you know, like a guy like Jake Spavadol at Texas Tech or at Texas State, you know, he's been getting crushed over the last couple of years because he's not really recruiting high school guys. Well, one of the reasons he's not doing it is because he doesn't want one to, like, blow up. You know, he spends all this time finding a gym, out-recruiting guys, finding this guy that falls through the cracks. He gets him on campus. Freshman year, that guy rushes for 1,000 yards. Well, he's not going to be on campus next year. So what was the point? And so uh, I, I think you're starting to see just a complete shift in, in philosophy around college. And, and the one that works or you know, finding the recipe that works for your specific institution, I don't know if it's ever been harder right now. I am not at all jealous of the life of college football coaches at this moment in time in the world.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. That's It's going to be interesting. Well, I, w- I do want to ask you about Rice w- w- when we wrap up, and, and then we'll get you out of here. But your kind of big big picture view uh, on where the Owls are right now and then kind of what you've seen is, you know, kind of onto the scene putting together the magazine and just kind of the, the storylines and, and things as, as you see it. Uh, I think it, it's an interesting perspective to get. You know, maybe the, the bird's eye view, outside view from from y'all versus maybe living living with our heads too far
1: uh, in the sand is South Main. Yeah, I feel like Rice, you know, for me, it's the quarterback position. I mean, if you tell me that a guy emerges as a quality starter who stays healthy and consistent throughout the year, I mean, I think Rice has a, a really good chance of reaching a bowl game. I mean, there are two overtime losses away from doing so last year without any consistency or Uh, from week to week at quarterback position. Some of that's not on the players. Some of that's injuries and and different variables that they can't control. But if you tell me one of those guys, you know, Wiley uh, Green, T.J. McMahon, one of those guys really takes the job by the scruff in August and and can stay healthy and consistent. Like we talked about with the wide receiver position earlier, I think offensively at least, Rice is much better than they were last year, just too deep talent-wise. I think they have better depth. Ari Broussard at running back could be one of the better running backs in Conference USA. The offensive line's pretty – Uh, experienced and and deep and so I think offensively Rice can do some things if they can you know not turn the ball over and stay healthy at quarterback for me it's defensively like what is Rice defensively if you tell me that they're one of the top half you know units in in conference I I think Rice is looking at a six seven win season if they're you know struggling to stop the run and, and really can't get any pressure and that's allowing you know, teams to, to gain a lot of yards, score some points, you know, it's going to be a tough year because I don't, no matter if Rice is more talented offensively, they're never going to be the type of team that scores 40, 50 points a game. So that defense is going to have to be good, even if the mm-hmm. offense is better. How much better it is, you know, I don't know. I think on paper, it looks pretty good. I mean, I, I like the secondary. I like the defensive line. For me, the biggest question mark is that linebacker. If they can figure out the second level, you know, I think this unit has can be pretty good. And I think the good news for Rice is Conference USA is a crapshoot. Like, the difference between the third-best team in Conference USA and the third-worst team in Conference USA is basically nothing. And so, you know, you can have a big jump the way UTEP did. You know, it doesn't take too much to go from, you know, three-, four-, five-win season to six-, seven-, eight-win season. And that's yeah, that's a huge difference, right, in terms of, like, perception of the program. And so, you know, talking to those Rice players, I, I think they believe that they're as talented as as they've been since bloomgren has been there. That everybody kind of understands what's expected of them. They're a little bit older of a roster, more experienced of a roster, coming out of a tough 2020 and then an unlucky 2021. It felt to me like there was a lot of confidence in that building more so than what I thought there would be. But then once you start kind of looking at it closer and closer, you go, okay, I can see why the optimism level would be there. You know, 2020 was just a throwout year. You just, you know, Rice just just couldn't get it going, right? I mean, you just couldn't have enough games to have a have a successful or unsuccessful season, but well, that bleeds into 2021 because that's game experience. Guys miss there's there's just so many things that go into that. Uh, and then you look at last year two overtime losses. You know, play three quarterbacks against Texas because of injuries. Tied going into the fourth quarter against Arkansas. Beat UAB on the road. Right, like it's just such a weird year that you feel like if they can put together their best on a week in week out basis, Rice has a chance with North Texas, UTEP to kind of be that team that gets to seven, eight wins, it kind of surprises the conference. And you look back and you go, oh, okay. I probably should have seen that in August. Yeah. I, I think
0: you put, I think in a nutshell, they're kind of a microcosm of the, the chaos that is college football right now. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the rice experience is that you've had everything from injuries to transfers to in and out to, you don't know if this is the team that's going to go beat the conference champion on the road, or if they're just going to disappear. Um, yep. if I find out, I'll let you know, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> We'll see. Uh, well, the, I, I find out. You need to let Bloomgren know. Yeah. Well, I I hope he figures it out before I do. Certainly. Um, at least it, it's it's looking that way. It was every spring is a good spring, right? Everyone's in the best shape of their life, and you know, yada yada yada, and so on That's, and so forth.
1: It, you're absolutely right about that. That is the thing that surprised me most from the spring is I would leave every single destination going. Man, I bet they have a pretty good year. <laughs> You know, and some time would pass and, you know, you'd start looking at stats and stuff and you're, okay, maybe not, you know, but like you would walk out of every single facility and every single locker room going, wow, man, they're, they're poised to have a breakout season, right? And you just know that can't be true for everybody. So where are you going to be wrong? I I think that for me, that's kind of the most interesting part is like, where am I going to be most wrong? Because it's inevitable that I'm going to be, I mean, looking back through last year's magazine, you know, there's some stuff that you're just like, how did they, you know, like Baylor's offensive line, Baylor's offensive line was like a, like a D plus or something in our magazine last year. Cause like nobody knew what it could look like. Right. I mean, it allowed so many sacks, all that kind of stuff. A new OC, new offensive line coach comes in and they're one of the best units in the nation. And we look like idiots, you know, and so that'll happen again. It's just trying to guess where it's going to happen and it, to me has been one of my favorite games right now. I love to
0: look like idiots when uh, it's skewed to the upside. <laughs> I'm wrong yeah, when people I, surprise me and, and
1: do above and beyond. It's not fun the other way. Nobody points those out though. You know, I won't get I won't get <laughs> or emails or anything about like, man, you nailed that one or whatever. You know, it's, it's only going to be <laughs> about one that uh, I did not get right.
0: All right. Well, we'll see. I, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. When when does the magazine uh, come out and, and hit shelves? Or I guess if we're subscribed to uh the uh, the uh, I guess the mailing list we get it early, right? Ain't that the yeah? End of June,
1: early July. We'll uh we'll announce the cover on June sixth. Um, we send it all off like our our final kind of like last edit type stuff is is the last weekend of May. Um, and so yeah, end of June, early July. Some of that kind of depends on just putting it together and you know off offsite stuff or whatever. So I don't know if there's like a clear cut actual day yet. Uh, but yeah, end of June, early July is usually when when that gets going, and yeah, the cover release is uh, that first Monday of June.
0: I'm excited for it, man. Uh, every year, Dave Campbell's is officially starting the the next season. So we have, I guess, we have four months now to uh, to talk about what's going to happen. But that's uh, in a month or so. I guess is just going to uh, add fuel to the fire when everybody's zero and zero and gonna have the uh, best uh, best year in program history. Again, I guess UTSA actually did that, so maybe somebody follows through, but we'll see. Um, we'll we'll let you go, man. Thank you for stopping by. Where can we follow you on uh, on social media? And uh, what else do we got? What's next after the magazine, man? Are you just gonna go on go on vacation for June and and check out?
1: No, I you know I still got to stick around and like I said, do the edits and you know monitor the transfer portal and and change change all that kind of stuff. Um, so. I won't get a vacation of that first week of June. When we announce the cover shoot or the cover, you know, like once we show the cover of that first week of June, I can, you know, finally get a break. So, you know, we're trying to get that cover uh, done. We still got to take the photos for that. I'm not allowed to like talk about what it is, but still got to do that. Um, you know, I'm going to do some, like, some of the stuff that didn't get in the magazine, you know, you go around and you talk to a coach and a couple players from each program and then you write the magazine and you're like, Oh, well, I, I like this, but I just couldn't get it in. So it'll be going back through some of that stuff and coming up with some story ideas of, you know, stuff that just like I couldn't fit into the magazine or, you know, maybe some more like big picture stuff that I could get, you know, a couple quotes from different coaches along the way. Uh, I, I, like we talked about earlier, you know, I don't think spring football is going to last for many more years. So maybe an article, you know, kind of diving into, to how the spring landscape kind of changes for college football in, in the new era. I
0: love it, man.
1: I'm excited. And I,
0: just here to talk about college football, no matter what month it is or anything else that's going on. Uh, it's a, a addiction in the best way possible, I suppose. So uh, we will, uh, with that, we will uh, sign off. Thank you for uh, stopping by. I'm sure we'll get you at some point. And for uh, those listeners who follow along, thank you for sticking it out. And we will be back uh, shortly. Rice fight. All right, man. Appreciate it. That was fun. Thanks for having uh, it's just uh, so much going on in, in your world. And I love hearing all the ins and
1: outs of I, I Sometimes I chaos. feel a little scatterbrained. I feel like you know, sometimes I... This show was edited and produced by Carter Spires. It features music from Joseph McDade.